0: Okay. Let's pray and we'll start Lord thank you for your love for us um, Thank you for the cross Thank you for uh, those who have gone before us We thank you for the Apostles Creed uh, We thank you for instilling in your church The, the early church just a love for truth And theology and doctrine And thank you for those who labored to craft uh, creeds And um, we thank you for the beauty of what's expressed in the Apostles' Creed, Lord. So help us as we learn it, uh, talk about it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we start, I just wanted to kind of talk briefly about something I said in this this sermon this morning about how the Hebrew consonantal text works, how there's no vowel. So just to give you an idea of what it might (laughs) look like for someone back then reading Hebrew, this will be kind of a test, and we'll see if... You can read this and figure out what it says. Yeah, so, love the Lord your God. No vowels. So when someone read Hebrew, this is kind of how they read it. They kind of understood what ended up happening later on in the 6th uh, century. Uh, the Ma- a group called the Masoretic Scribes, the Masoretes ended up coming in and looking at the consonantal text of the, of the Hebrew Bible and saying, we want to preserve what's here, and we especially want to preserve uh, the pronunciation. And so they came in, and what what was a, a vocal, a very audible language, they said, we want to put vowels there to make sure that people that come after us actually know what it says. So then they came in, and they put, well, that's English, I'll do it in a... This is what that word I mentioned this morning, he saw or, or he... He feared looks like uh, in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word. uh, Here it's vayurah. So this is what it looked like when they saw it. And then in the 6th century AD, the Masoretes come along and they start putting in... It it was called a vowel pointing system. Uh, They put in little dots and things that represented certain vowels. So they they would have come along and done something like that, vayurah, or I can't remember which one it is. Something like that. So... That's how uh, we actually end up getting uh, the name Jehovah, is that they took uh, God's covenant name in Hebrew, Yahweh, and they didn't want to pronounce it, even though they had always pronounced it. So some people think that they never pronounced God's name Yahweh. They pronounced Yahweh. David did. Moses did. Abraham did. Adam did. They pronounced Yahweh. What happened is the Masoretes come along, and they want to protect this name. And they're, they're afraid that if we take it in vain or something, we might end up in exile again. So they want to protect that. So what they did is they took the vowels from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord or Master, and instead of making this say, Yahweh. They took the vowels from Adonai and stuck them in Yahweh so that when you saw that word, you're like, what word is that? Oh, yeah, we're not supposed to say Yahweh. And so they would say Adonai when they were reading out loud instead of Yahweh. And so when you kind of pronounce it out, it kind of sounds like uh, Jehovah. Uh, By the time it comes into German, uh, they pronounce the J's and things. It kind of became Jehovah. So Jehovah is not God's name. It's just kind of this. There's no name at all. And so that happened with the Masoretic scribes. So that's kind of just a touch on what I talked about this morning on on what they were reading. They were reading a consonantal text with no vowels at all. And so this either this can look like depending on the vowels that are there, this can look like he saw or he was afraid. So anyway, so you read this in English with no vowels, so you would probably be good at Hebrew too. Mm -hmm. But the Hebrew Bible now, the Masoretic text as we have it, has all of these uh, little vowel points and things that they put in there. And so you kind of, this is how you read Hebrew. You kind of read it down and then up and then down and then up. And you just kind of weave in there and try to figure it out. And there's all kinds of rules because it's a language and so nothing plays nice. And so sometimes... This vowel might drop to a shortened vowel, go from a, uh, uh, a comments to a patok, and then this one there might be silent, and then you got vowel consonants that function as vowels, you got consonants that sometimes function as vowels. This is just a big mess, but it's a glorious mess. So, anyway, so I was a Hebrew major in seminary, and I'm pretty rusty now, so I'm still trying to keep up as much as I can, but anyway, that's just to kind of give you an idea of what we were talking about this morning. Tonight we want to talk about the Apostles' Creed. So you have it on your handouts. Let's just read it first, and then we'll talk about how it came together. And I, before, as we read this, just notice how concise this is, how uh, compact and how beautifully crafted it is, like the essence of the Christian faith is captured here in this paragraph. It begins by saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, or he descended into hell. We'll talk about that in a minute. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic or universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So you'll notice that one phrase there. There's a couple I put in in parentheses there. We'll talk about that. One of those, the Holy Catholic Church or the Holy Universal. That word Catholic does not mean Roman Catholic as we understand it. It means the universal church. Uh, I grew up in the Methodist Church and went to sixth grade camp. And we had to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And they never said anything about this. And I remember thinking, I'm a Methodist and we believe in the Holy Catholic Church? I don't know much about the Catholic Church, but why do we believe in the Catholic Church? I, didn't have, I was in sixth grade. I didn't raise my hand and ask any questions. But I remember thinking, that's weird. But this was something we had to memorize at this camp that we went to, and then we had to recite it. So the Apostles' Creed was written sometime in the second century. and was altered throughout the first few centuries of its, of its existence. And we have some of these phrases that come in here. But it's important to know that it was not written by the twelve apostles. Because it's written in the 2nd century. And guess what? The apostles are already dead, aren't they? So it could not have been written by the 12 apostles. If it was written in the 2nd century. Because they're all dead. But it's called the Apostles' Creed. Because it's the early church's attempt to give a summary of apostolic teaching. And it's a summary of the 12 apostles' teaching. It, it belongs to all 12 of them. And that's why... It's written this way, another grammar lesson, just what you wanted, right? It's the Apostles (laughs) Creed and not the Apostles like it belongs to one person. The little apostrophe goes on the end there. It belongs to all of of the 12 Apostles. It's a summary of their teaching because you remember... Jesus picked the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, and then they ended up picking people after them, the bishops that we looked at. And so there was this long line of trustworthiness that truth and and doctrine and theology was being passed down, not just through random people, but they could trace it back to the 12 apostles and back to Jesus himself. So it's the Apostles' Creed because it's a summary of apostolic doctrine Uh, apostolic teaching. It's a summary of really Christian essentials. And so we have a a snapshot in the Apostles' Creed of the essentials of Christianity. But because this is church history, there is a legend that each of the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed were written by one of the 12 apostles. For example, uh, Rufinus of Aquilia lived in 345 to 411 AD, he wrote this. He said, so they, the apostles, met together in one spot and, being filled with the Holy Spirit, compiled this brief token, the Apostles' Creed, each making the contribution he thought fit, and they decreed that it should be handed out as standard teaching to believers. That's what Rufinus said. We'll we'll talk about him again. But despite its title, there's no evidence whatsoever that the Apostles' Creed was actually written by the Twelve Apostles, like Rufinus had said. And so this legend by the time of the Renaissance is largely abandoned. People are not believing that the Twelve Apostles each wrote something. But what's interesting about this creed is that it is widely accepted by most Christians. I learned it in the Methodist Church. I I would hope that we would affirm it here at Grace. Many traditions and denominations. Affirm the Apostles' Creed. Really more than any other profession of faith. Irenaeus that we've looked at. Believed in it. Affirmed it. Tertullian, Origen. Men that we have looked at. Affirmed various parts of it. John Calvin actually devoted an entire chapter. In his Institutes to the Apostles' Creed. I'll read a portion of. Of uh, it from to you later from John Calvin. So the Apostles' Creed is actually a variant of an ancient baptismal confession known as the Old Roman Creed. And it, sometimes it was, it came, we think the Apostles' Creed came from something that was called the Old uh, Roman Creed. That was. Circulating. It's also called just the Roman Creed or the Old Roman Symbol. So if you're reading church history, you might come across these phrases, the Old Roman Creed or the Roman Symbol. The Old Roman Creed is believed to have uh, been created in accordance with Jesus' commands in Matthew 28 19, where he said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So one of the main uses of the Apostles' Creed in time was that it was used in baptism. Those who were coming to be baptized in the church were asked uh, these questions. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Ghost and of Mary the Virgin, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose again at the third day, living from among the dead and ascended unto heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the quick and the dead? And do you believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And so you kind of see some of the same language as found in the Apostles' Creed was being used in questions as people came forward To be baptized. And we've talked about this before, but we see an emphasis in stressing very basic Christian doctrine in the early church, according to the Apostles' Creed, especially at baptism. So you kind of fast forward through church history, there are several Reformation catechisms, such as the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in 1563. Martin Luther's small catechism written in 1529. Both of those use the Apostles' Creed as a way of articulating the basics of the Christian faith. For example, question 22 in the Heidelberg question asks this. What then must a Christian believe? And it answers, all that is promised us in the gospel which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. Again, the word Catholic there is universal. And then the answer to the next question in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question 23, says, what are these articles? And it's the text of the Apostles' Creed. So they, they reply by saying, this is what we're supposed to believe. And so the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, is affirming the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed also forms the answer to question number 31 of the New City Catechism that we recite every Sunday morning in church. New City Catechism question 31 says, what do we believe by true faith? Answer, everything taught to us in the gospel. The Apostles' Creed expresses what we believe in these words. And then the New City Catechism goes on to recite the Apostles' Creed. But question, why have creeds at all? Why do we have creeds? Why do we need creeds? If we have the Bible, why do we need creeds? you probably, Debbie? are easier to remember. Easier to remember. They're, they're succinct. It, it's, we'll talk about it here in just a minute on why that's easy. Because remember, they didn't have copies of the New Testament, most people at this time. So here's a creed that they could memorize as they're dealing with false teachers. Yeah. You probably heard people say this. No creed but Christ. You ever heard that? Some people, they don't like creeds. They don't like the Apostles' Creed. They don't like uh, any of the other creeds that came about through church history, the Nicene Creed, etc. And so there's a very popular saying in some circles that says, no creed but Christ. But the irony is, that's a creed in itself, isn't it? Because the word creed simply means, I believe. That's what the word means. Creed means, I believe. So when someone says, no creed but Christ, they're telling you what they believe. So a creed is simply a statement of what someone believes. It's a statement of faith. And so what reasons were there for developing the Apostles' Creed or any of the other creeds that come along? And we'll look at some uh, soon in, in the early church. What reasons were they? Well, the main reason is that creeds, number one, they draw up boundaries. Creeds draw up boundaries, We'll take this for an example. They drop a boundary around truth about what we can say about God. And and creeds transmit truth. They transmit doctrine. They transmit theology. They transmit truth. And then they also protest error and false teaching. Here's what one of my church history professors, Dr. Jeff Bingham, says. He says, And I think I've shared this with you before. You cannot trust me to be a gentleman with Scripture on a date by myself. Unobserved and unmonitored. You must send a chaperone. Tradition. I don't want to date tradition, but Scripture. I am interested in having a relationship with Scripture, but in order for it to be fruitful, I have to bring in tradition. Tradition helps me stay in the straight and narrow. He's saying, you can't trust me on a date With just the Bible by itself. Without a chaperone, tradition, church history, creeds and councils. Because if I'm all alone with my Bible, I'm going to come up with some wacky interpretations. Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't read the Bible on our own. He's just saying we shouldn't exclusively read the Bible on our own. Without the church community and without the community of faith throughout church history. Because I've told you before, I had two friends in college who came to me and said, We've been reading Revelation 11 and we think we're the two witnesses. That are mentioned in Revelation 11. And I was like, you're not the two witnesses. (laughs) So we need a chaperone when we read scripture. Because left to ourselves, we can come up with some wacky interpretations. So we need chaperones when we read the Bible. We need tradition. We need church history. We need uh, elders. And and we need a statement of faith in our church. Uh, We need the community of God. The church body. Uh, we need the traditions that have been passed down to us in the creeds and councils of church history. I mean, even our own statement of faith here at Grace can function as a chaperone when we read the Bible. And so if somebody comes up with some wacky interpretation and they say, I don't believe that God is triune. If somebody comes and says, the Bible, the word Trinity is never in the Bible, so I don't believe in the Trinity We'd say brother or sister. Yeah, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but our statement of faith, which we're getting from the word of God, says that God is triune, that there is one God eternally existing in three persons. So just because the English word Trinity is not in the Bible does not mean that we don't believe that. And so you need to come around our statement of faith, which we're getting from Scripture. You need that chaperone to let you know whatever it is, that wacky conclusion you're coming up with it doesn't jive with our statement of faith and we can show you that it doesn't jive with the Bible. And so when I when he mentions chaperones, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about not just reading the Bible all by ourself without input from other people because we can be dangerous. You maybe you did this as an early Christian, read the Bible and thought, oh, this verse means this. And then you grow and you're like, oh, man, that was kind of weird. I actually believed that. Uh, Dr. Bingham, my professor, also said this. He said, this is, after all, what church leaders do. They explain to their congregations acceptable parameters within which they are to understand and interpret the Bible. They also point out unacceptable interpretations. Good theology doesn't just happen. Church leaders who care for their congregations don't allow unacceptable thinking about the Trinity and Christ's person to go unchecked. Church leaders must first be the church's theologians. Do the councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, and Chalcedon answer all of our questions about the Trinity and the Incarnation? No, but they do give us boundaries within which we find acceptable interpretations of the scriptures about the Trinity and the two natures of Christ. We may not have all the answers, but we know things we should say and believe, and we know views we shouldn't hold. Mature Christians may be more than those who know and confess true doctrine, but they can never be less. And so pastors and elders must labor to explain these acceptable parameters within which people are to understand the Bible. And the creeds and the councils of church history give us these boundaries within which we find acceptable interpretations of the scriptures about Jesus. So the creeds and councils give us parameters, and they kind of draw circles around what we can and can't say about God. Any questions or comments on that up to this point? Well, what happens with uh, like uh, Christians in China, Communist China? They only have maybe portions of the Bible. Yeah, they don't have a church body that or these other things that can help guide them. What's going to guide them? Well, I think, well, the Spirit of God living in them. And I think they're really kind of thrust back to kind of the church at this point, although the church has the Old Testament. Again, not everybody has a copy of the scriptures, even in the second and third century. it's, It's really not until the printing press. And even then it takes time. So I think, one, we have to say, well, the Spirit of God is dwelling in them. And hopefully, at least nowadays, they're able to get some information. But then you hear people smuggling in Bibles and things like that. And so I think we have to pray for them and trust that the Spirit is working through them and leading them and guiding them. And sure, they're, I'm sure they're coming up with some weird interpretations. Even if they just, I've heard of some people just getting a copy, of just a page of the Bible ripped out and they cling to it, you know. And so I think maybe in time, as God raises up leaders in the underground church, they're able to disciple them. And so and so that's why I think, you know, when you look at a newer believer, you look at someone like that, or you look at someone in church history, you know, we tend to throw these people under the bus, but I mean they 're working with what they have they 're trying to wrestle with scripture again i 'm not talking about the heretics because church leaders went to these heretics and said, "You need to repent and change because what you look at scripture and what you 're saying is not there i 'm not talking about that i 'm talking about people who are just uh, uninformed and they, they need to learn and grow, and so we need to be gracious with people who are new believers. Gosh, the stuff I used to think you know, man, what I used to think when I was five years old as a Christian. you know it's taken me years to really understand the gospel and so i'm not going to be so judgmental on some people and so especially in that context i think you know there's grace for for them and what they're going through and we just trust that the spirit is working jesus said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail and so but it's, it's a good question yeah Okay, so the Apostles' Creed was originally called or came out of something called the old the old Roman Creed or the Roman Symbol. It appeared around uh, 150 to 175 A.D. Uh, again, these are well, this is church history. Everybody's trying to guess a date, so they gave us a nice 25-year window to pin it down on. Uh, Written around the time of the apologists that we've been looking at over the last four classes. And so the logical question is what was happening in Rome at this time? Well, it's everything that we've been talking about. All of these false teachers that are popping up in the church and getting very popular and people are buying their books and, and people are singing their songs in church. This is the context when the Apostles' Creed is birthed and formulated and shaped. So the church was dealing with Heretics and heresies uh, like Marcion and Valentinus and Gnosticism and Docetism. And so the church begins crafting the Apostles' Creed to bring unity to the church and to stress what we believe as Christians. But we are naive if we think that simply introducing a creed like the Apostles' Creed would bring it into heresy. If we think that way, then we are too optimistic about the nature of heresy and how persistent heretics can be. Because heretics don't cry uncle every time a new creed comes out. They don't. So with the, the introduction of the Apostles' Creed and all the later creeds that come after us, heretics simply sharpened their heretical teachings. So the creeds did not phase them at all. <laughs> Heretics refined and they came back and repackaged their false theologies. And so then the church sometimes was then forced to further define orthodoxy and make some things even more explicit. And that's really what the creeds and councils of church history are doing. They're taking things that are very implicit in the scriptures and they're trying to make them explicit and explain them. So the Apostles' Creed was Gradually amended through these years to answer some of these heretics. For instance, even though the idea of Jesus's resurrection was in the original form of the Apostles Creed, the word body was added for the sake of emphasis to combat the false theology that Jesus was just resurrected spiritually and that he was not resurrected bodily. So they had to come back and say, well, now we've got these heretics saying that Jesus was resurrected, but he wasn't resurrected bodily. He was just resurrected spiritually. So they added the word body. Also, the word suffered was added to the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, why is that added? Again, to stress that Jesus really came and had a body. Because you remember the docetist? They claim Jesus did not have a body. He just seemed or appeared to be here. Kind of like a ghost. And so Jesus could not have suffered if he didn't have a body. So the word suffered was added in response to the Docetists. Later on through church history, we looked at Tertullian a couple classes ago. Tertullian mentions what he calls a rule of faith, which is most likely the Apostles' Creed. Tertullian says this now with regard to this rule of faith that we may from this point acknowledge what it, it is which we defend. It is you must know that which prescribes the belief that there is One, only God, and that he is none other than the creator of the world. So Tertullian then goes on to discuss elements of the Apostles' Creed, but sometimes they call it the rule of faith. Augustine, who we'll look at eventually, also called the Apostles' Creed the rule of faith. He said this, Receive, my children, the rule of faith, which is called the symbol or the creed. See, there it is again, the old Roman symbol. And when ye have received it, Write it in your heart and be daily saying it to yourselves. Before ye sleep, before ye go forth, arm you with your creed. The creed no man writes so as it may be able to be read, but for the rehearsal of it. In other words, he's saying, We just didn't write this creed so we can read it. He said, We wrote this creed so that we can rehearse it, lest haply forgetfulness obliterate what care hath delivered. Let your memory be your record, roll. What ye are about to hear, that are ye to believe. And what ye shall have believed, that are about to give back with your tongue. For the Apostle says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For this is the creed which ye are to rehearse and to repeat in answer. These words which ye have heard are in the divine scriptures scattered up and down, but thence gathered and reduced into one, that the memory of slow persons might not be distressed. I like that. So you struggle to remember truths. You struggle to hear what your pastor says on Sunday. You struggle to believe. Here, we put the creed of what you're supposed to believe is a condition. We've, as a Christian, we've condensed it down for you if you're really slow. He says we do that, that every person may be able to say, able to hold, what he believes, like Debbie said. Why write it down? So that we can know what we believe and it's, it's in a, a succinct form. He says, For have ye now merely heard that God is almighty? But ye begin to have him for your father when ye have been born by the church as your mother. So what does Augustine mean by that? If you don't have the church as your mother, you can't have God as your father. What, what do you think he means by that? If you don't have the church as your mother, you can't have God as your father. A nurturer. What's that? Someone who nurtures. nurtures. Well, nurtures through the truth of the, of the scriptures. Yeah. It, it's the, the idea is that uh, we're being nurtured... Uh, With all the benefits of Christ through the church, through the preaching of the words, the sacraments, also the idea um, he's bringing in elements of the creed here, I think, of the universal church and the communion of the saints. And so what I think he's saying is that if you want to have God as your father, you have to be a part of the local church. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be a Christian and not go to church for six months and somehow you lose your salvation. We're not, he's not saying that. But he's saying a true Christian recognizes that they need to be in the local body, the body of Christ, where they get all this nurturing and uh, nourishment through preaching and the sacraments. So Augustine basically says here that we need to be uh, rehearsing the gospel really by rehearsing the Apostles' Creed. He said we should write it on our hearts Recite it, say it daily, right before you go to sleep, or right before you go to work. Rehearse this. Think about this. How might that aid in your personal discipleship if you memorized and rehearsed the Apostles' Creed? Do you think it might change your outlook on life, maybe? If you started reminding yourself, it's from the very beginning of, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God is my Father. Whoa. Jesus lived and died for me. He was raised from the dead. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. I mean, what a great, uh, concise truth to remind ourselves of when we wake up in the morning, when we walk out the door to go to work. So I think it would help renew our minds. I think Augustine's right. So... The Apostles' Creed was not just polemical to deny heresy and to combat these heretics. It was also written to encourage believers with basic Christian doctrine. Because these people didn't have access to all of the New Testament scriptures just yet. Some did. They're starting to be copied and written around. But sometimes you just had a copy at your church. So the Apostles' creed aided believers in refreshing their hearts as they rehearsed these truths and in defending truth and denying heresy Christians were armed with the basic truths of Christianity so that if they did meet a Gnostic at Starbucks and the Gnostic said well all creation is bad well, their ears would perk up and the Christian could recall the very first words of the creed I believe in God the Father Almighty the maker of heaven and earth hmm. I don't. What this guy is saying about the earth being bad? No, God made the earth, and so it equipped Christians to defend the faith against heresy. Uh, the first few words right there, the first three words, "I believe in," remind us that we are a people of faith, like we talked about this morning. We walk by what faith, not by sight. We see this at the very beginning of the Apostles' Creed, stressing that we are a people of faith. We are a people who trust. Uh, we have a statement of faith, and so we confess what we believe. We confess that we are God's redeemed children. And he has caused us to see the truths that are expressed in the, Apostle Creed and the, the Apostle's Creed and the Apostles' Creed and those others that we will look at. He has caused us to see that these are believable and they're very beautiful. For instance... That phrase, God the Father, almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, why does the the creed begin with God the Father, maker of all things? I mean, who might this be addressing? You remember Marcion we looked at? Marcion believed that there were two gods. There was the wrathful, judgmental God in the Old Testament. And then there was the very good, gracious, kind, merciful, gentle God of the New Testament who... Never ruffled your feathers and never called you out on your sin. He's just so nice. That's what Marcion believed. Marcion thought that the Jews and their scriptures, the Old Testament, had zero value because it's just full of this wrathful God. And so if you remember, Marcion's Bible only had a chopped up version of Luke's gospel and the 10 letters of Paul. That's all he had. We'll talk about Marcion when we uh, talk about uh, the New Testament canon next week and the weeks that follow. But Marcion hated all of the laws of the Old Testament. He was influenced by Gnosticism, if you recall, which proposes this dualistic understanding of life. Remember, Gnosticism teaches that the physical world is evil, it's bad, and only the spiritual realm is good. And so Marcion was influenced by Gnosticism. He didn't embrace it all the way, but he was heavily influenced by it. And he applied this kind of dualism to the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is wrathful and angry, out for vengeance, he's bad. God of the New Testament uh, is kind and and gentle, and he just brings a message of love. Um, That leads us then to also um, the uh, Gnostics, you remember. The Gnostics believe that there's one supreme God, the Father, Who has nothing to do with the material world because it's bad and terrible and stinky and rotten. And he's completely unknown and you can't know him unless the Gnostics give you that special knowledge. And they said, God, uh, his name is Bethus, which is the Greek word for deep. He's very deep and profound and you can't get to know him. And so they said, he's the good God and the bad God is this God called the Demiurge, who's Yahweh. The Father uh, was the good God. Yahweh, the Demiurge, is the bad God because he likes the material world. And so right off the bat, we see the Apostles' Creed addressing and refuting the heresies of Marcion and the Gnostics. Christians believe in God the Father who loves his creation, doesn't he? Even though it's fallen, he loves his creation. John reminds us of this incredible Flabbergasting truth in 1 John 3 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I mean, think about that. The Apostles' Creed starts off talking about God the Father, how we have been adopted into his family. I mean, that's amazing. Okay? You ever meet a kid who's never disciplined and just runs around and does stuff, and you're like, Oh my gosh, somebody needs to. Get that kid. I mean, that's how we are. And God says to us, I'll adopt you and bring you into my family. And we're those kids like we're at too much sugar and climbing on the walls and jumping around and won't sit still and talking back. And God says, I'll bring you into my family. And so the Apostles Creed begins stressing the fatherhood of God. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer tells us that the highest privilege of the gospel is adoption. That we've been adopted into God's family and have him as father. Here's what Packer says. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future. That that is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this, the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now, Packer says, with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So here's what Packer is saying. Justification. As John Calvin said, it's the hinge on which all of our theology hangs. That God looks at us and declares us righteousness because of what Jesus has done and we're forgiven. He says, I mean, that is it. But... Adoption is even greater because is this would it be good if God said to you, you're declared righteous, you're forgiven, I never want to see you again. <laughs> or you're declared righteous, you're forgiven, you're family, you're my children, and now you're an heir, an heir with Christ. All that I have is yours. The inheritance is yours. Everything in my will now belongs to you. Which one's greater? Well, adoption is, and that's Packer's idea, and... That's the wonderful phrase that the Apostles' Creed begins with. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And our Father is almighty. He's not just a soft pushover. Sometimes you have these TV sitcom dads, and you know, and the family just kind of pushes them over, and everybody gets their way, and, and the man has no spine, and he's just kind of walked on. That's not our Father. Our Father is almighty. He made heaven and earth. Questions or comments before we look at the phrase "He descended into hell"? You probably have questions about that, How Debbie. Did the Gnostics believed created the heavens and the earth. They believed that uh, the demiurge did, so they said the demiurge is Yahweh, and so the Father is Bethus. He's different. And Yahweh, the guy in the Old Testament, like, he's the guy who created it. And so that was their understanding. So the father to them was Bethus, who was, you know, otherworldly. And Yahweh was the one who created this world. And he's the one that's, he's the one to blame for everything. Why, you know, when you turn 47, you wake up and you're like, why does my knee hurt? I did nothing in my sleep, but my knee hurts. The Gnostics would have said, see, that's Yahweh's fault. All right, let's look at the phrase that's included here. And at the beginning of your notes, I put it in uh, parentheses there. Uh, He descended to the dead or he descended into hell. The earliest reference that we can find to this phrase, descended into hell, is probably around the middle of the 3rd century or the early 4th century, perhaps. It does not mean that this phrase was original in the Apostles' Creed. We don't know uh, when the original was written because this is church history and the dates, as we've seen, are flexible. But the phrase, he descended into hell, appears to be a later addition. So let's fast forward now to the 4th century. And by this time, there were several versions of different creeds floating around the church. And in 395, a man named Rufinus that I mentioned earlier, uh, he wrote a commentary on one of those creeds called the Aquilian Creed, And Rufinus is the guy who claimed that each of the 12 apostles contributed a phrase to the Apostles' Creed. But Rufinus did something else that forever changed our understanding of what is known as the Apostles' Creed. Rufinus, that rascal, changed the words of the Creed regarding the descent clause that he descended. Instead of using the word that Christ descended to the lower regions or the grave, he used the word for hell. And he even admits that he changed the wording. He says this. But it should be known that the clause he descended into hell is not added in the creed of the Roman church or the old Roman creed. Neither is it in that of the Oriental churches. So he's admitting it wasn't in the old Roman creed where the Apostles Creed was based from. He's admitting there in writing that it's not original. But from that point on, this new phrase, he descended into hell, stuck because that's how church history works, right? So, what does Scripture say about what happened between Jesus' death and the resurrection? Does Scripture say that Jesus descended into hell? What about on the cross? What does Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be where? With me in paradise. In paradise. So, Jesus plans on going to be in paradise, in heaven, wherever that is, with his Father. We know that his body goes where? Into the tomb, right? Because remember, human beings are made up of two parts, the physical and the material. I mean, the, the physical and the, uh, in, uh, the spirit and the material and immaterial. So we have body and spirit. Your body goes into the grave, if you're a believer, and your spirit goes to be with God in heaven, if you will, uh, wherever that is, in the spirit somewhere. And so that happened to Jesus. So he dies, his body goes into the grave. His spirit, along with the spirit of the thief on the cross goes to be with God the Father. So if Jesus does go to hell after death, as some Christians believe, when does he go to hell? Or does he go to hell at all? I would say that Jesus did not go to hell. First, where did the idea of Jesus descending to hell come from? Can you think of any passages in Scripture? The to the were and before Noah yeah Preach the Spirit's in prison before Noah. Yeah, that's probably where Rufinus is getting this idea. Also, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. So let's look at those. Ephesians 4, verses 9 through 10. And also, 1 Peter 3, it's uh, 18 to 20. So that's probably where Rufinus gets this idea. Ephesians 4, 9 through 10. In the English Standard Version says... In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I actually like the way the Net Bible translates it because it throws the word word namely in there. The New English translation says, now what is the meaning of he ascended? Except that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth. The earth. He, the very one who descended, is also the one who ascended above all the heavens in order to fill all things. The New Living Translation also says he descended to our lowly world. So we have these phrases, lowly world, lower region, lower parts of the earth, or namely the earth. And this phrase then has been interpreted in three ways. Number one, it's uh, in reference to people, uh, a reference to the underworld, hell. So some people read these, this verse, and they say it's talking about Jesus going to hell in the three days between his death and resurrection. Second way to translate this phrase of the earth, he descended to the earth or descended to the lower parts, is namely the earth. Take it as that. Let's talk about how he came to earth in the incarnation. Okay? And then the third view we're going to look at is that he, the Spirit, uh, Descended at Pentecost. So we're going to, I'll unpack these three real quick. So he either descended to hell, actually, or he just came to the earth, or it's talking about what happened at Pentecost. So uh, I think this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4 that he descended, he that descended is also the one who ascended and went back to the Father. So he's saying, when Paul says, the one who ascended, to heaven is also the one who descended, meaning he descended into his incarnation, and after his resurrection, he ascended. Uh, some people think he descended... Let's do a different color. I'm getting fancy. He descended to... Uh, actually, it would be after his death. So, do it this way. He descended to hell for three days, and then after that, he went... To be with the Father. And then the third option is Pentecost. That the Holy Spirit descended upon the church at Pentecost. So Jesus ascended. Actually. He descended here after the resurrection. And then he descended at Pentecost through the Spirit. So those are kind of the three main views that we have. I think number two best explains it that. Uh, when it says, let me get the exact phrase here. Uh, what is the meaning of he ascended after his resurrection, except that it means also he descended. So if Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, like the Apostles Creed said, that implies by nature that what? There was a descent before there was an ascent. So these are kind of the, the three views that people take on this. Questions or comments on this? Um, some people, some charismatic Christians, uh, Pentecostals like that, believe that Jesus had to suffer for three days in hell. That his spirit had to suffer so that our spirits could experience healing. Um, but what, what, can you think of anything that Jesus said on the cross that would disprove that he had, his spirit had to suffer for three days? So it that our finished. spirits, yeah, it is finished. Not, there's a footnote here, it's finished. After I descend, it's, it's finished. I've, on the cross, I've accomplished everything. Greg? Yeah, growing up in the Pentecostal church in the south, back in Tennessee. I mean, we didn't, I wasn't taught that, but we believed that, uh, or I, it was taught at the Church of God that uh, the reason for him descending into hell was to break the chains or, I don't know, uh, witness to the law. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get to that on the first Peter one. That's another interpretation. And some people think that Jesus, when Scripture talks about Abraham's bosom, they some Christians have believed that there's like this space where uh, believer believers before the cross went to, and that Jesus went down here and got him and said, "Okay, y'all are coming with me up here." But I think if you read Scripture, if you look, take a biblical theology of uh, death and, and resurrection and what happens to a believer after they die. I think the moment that Abraham died, his spirit went to be in heaven and his body went to the ground. Um, so some people believe that or some people think, we'll talk about the first Peter. Let's go there to that passage that Jesus actually went down into hell and preached to people who were there. So First Peter chapter 3, you flip there in your Bibles if you have not There's probably another uh, way that Perhaps Rufinus got this idea or that Christians think that Jesus went there. First Peter 3:18 to 20 says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So this has kind of been the primary text for saying that Jesus actually descended into hell. And so the real question is, uh, who are these spirits in prison that he went to preach to? And so interpretation number one is that the spirits are unsaved people in Noah's day. So these are unsaved people in Noah's day uh, in that um, through uh, Noah, Jesus is preaching through Noah to unbelievers uh, who were ridiculing Noah for building the ark. These people did not believe uh, Noah's message. And so some people think that he's preaching to those people. Uh, interpretation two is that these are fallen spirits. You are kept in chains of darkness. Anybody know that passage? Second Peter talks about these spirits that are kept in gloomy chains of darkness. And so some people think that if Jesus went to hell, he went to speak to these fallen angels that had rebelled and were put in these chains of uh, uh, gloomy chains of darkness. That's Second Peter 2.4 is that verse. You can read about that. Um, So in this interpretation, in between his death and resurrection, Jesus went and proclaimed his victory over sin and death and and the devil to these fallen angels. So he kind of showed up and said, ta-da, I win, you know, and you're going to stay in gloomy chains of darkness until, uh, well, always. Now, interpretation number three is that these are unsaved people who are actually in hell. And that's... After his death, before his resurrection, Jesus went to uh, people in hell and offered them a second chance to believe the gospel. But I I think we would disagree with that because the Bible never, never says there's a second chance, does it? It says repent. Today is the day of salvation, not once you're in hell, Jesus will show up and give you a second chance. So, uh, John Calvin's view uh, on this, we don't have time for me to share my view on this, um, but I haven't found anyone who holds it, so, uh, you know, maybe it'll, it'll get recorded, I'll be recorded as a heretic 100,000 years from now, um, but um, we don't have time for it, so maybe another time, or you can go back and listen to the series in First Peter. Uh, of what I think it is. All right, I'll give you a nut. Okay, you want to hear? I'll give you a nut, a quick, 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 quick one. That that Jesus is the one who went and preached to Noah and his family's spirits as they were building the ark. So as as Noah and his family, they're the spirits who are in prison because that Greek word uh, for prison can mean kept or. Watched. Uh, there's passages are to keep, like Luke two eight. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping what over their flocks by Watch. night. Watch. John twelve twenty five. Jesus said, "Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life." That's the same Greek word that gets translated as tri- prison. So the idea is is keeping and watching over something, guarding something, protecting something, and so. I think this is what Jesus was doing with Noah and his family. That he, through the Spirit, somehow went and preached the gospel to them to encourage them. Now, why would Noah and his family need encouragement? Took a long time to build the ark. 120 years to build the ark. They were being bombarded being constantly. Bombarded. In How many Christians were on the earth back then? Zero. <laughs> yeah. Eight. Eight Christians on the earth. The size Yeah, yeah. Besides them, there were zeros. So you got eight people on the earth for 120 years building an ark and the entire world hates them. Do you think they needed encouragement? And so I think Peter is saying that it's through the spirit uh, that Jesus went and, and preached to their spirits that were being guarded or kept from this culture. It does say they formerly did not obey. I think Peter's saying, hey, there was a time when Noah and his family didn't believe, but they did then believe and they suffered. Who's Peter writing to? People in exile who are suffering. Several times in Peter's letter, he says, you formerly did not obey. You were in ignorance. You were not a people of God. Now you're a people of God. And he's saying, you're just like Noah and his family. At one point, they did not obey and believe. And then God in his grace saved them. And now they're living as exiles and suffering persecution. And I'm writing the gospel to you. You used to formerly not believe. You were not a people. Now you're a people. And he's saying Jesus did the same thing with Noah and his family. Too. He was guarding them and protecting them, preaching the good news to them. And Peter is saying, I'm doing the same thing to you in my letter. You formerly didn't obey. You're suffering Persecution. Anyway, that's my wild and crazy idea. I haven't found anybody who believes it. So if I'm called a heretic a thousand years from now, so be it. So there you go. There's my uh, wild and crazy interpretation. Uh, you're probably better off going with John Calvin. So let me read John Calvin and not my crazy idea. If you want to go back, you can, you can listen to a sermon I preached on that. Uh, I think it was in like 2014. I think the sermon was titled in the same boat as Noah, no pun intended. I think something like that. So you can go back and I might explain it a little more. Uh, John Calvin is what he's saying and taking this phrase in his institutes where he's explaining this phrase that Jesus descended into hell, essentially is saying that Jesus went through hell on the cross, that he felt, it felt like hell to him. He felt abandoned by his father. He felt rejected and it was hell on earth for him. So let me read, it's kind of a lengthy quote, but you're better to leave with Calvin's thoughts than my heretical view on this passage. Consequently, he says, we must look for a more convincing explanation of this clause. He descended into hell. God's word furnishes us with one which is not only good and holy, but is full of much consolation. Nothing would have been achieved if Jesus Christ had simply endured bodily death. It was necessary for him to feel the severity of God's judgment, that he might step between and by satisfying his wrath, somehow prevent it from falling upon us. It was thus necessary for him to fight hand to hand the powers of hell and the terror of everlasting death. No one should wonder then that he is said to have descended into hell since he suffered the death Which God's wrath lays upon evildoers. So that this may be more readily understood, is it not a terrible and miserable abyss to feel oneself forsaken and abandoned by God, to receive no help from Him when we call upon Him, and to expect only that He has already plotted to ruin and destroy us? Yet, as we know, it was to that extremity that Jesus Christ came, being compelled by such dire anguish to exclaim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Although some maintain that he was expressing not his own feelings, but the thoughts of others, that is scarcely credible, for it is obvious that his words sprang from deep bitterness of heart. However, we should not infer from this that God was ever hostile to or angry with his Christ, For how could the father be angry with his beloved son, in whom, as he said, he was well pleased? Or how could Christ, by his intervention, have appeased the father in respect of men, if he had made God angry with him? What we say is that he bore the burden of God's vengeance, in that he was beaten and afflicted by God's hand, and endured all the signs of wrath which God displays to sinners when he is angry with them and punishes them. The cross, death, and hell mean life for us. God's son was in hell, but that man is lifted up to heaven. And I think that's really the heart of the clause is that Jesus experienced absolute hell on the cross when he took our sins upon himself and died as a substitute in our place. So I don't think he... um, went to any fallen spirits and preached them. I don't think he preached any unsaved in hell. When he descended, if you take the phrase, he descended into hell and not he descended to the earth, I think that's what you get. So, some some copies uh, of the Apostles' Creed will say he descended to, let's uh, say here he descended to um, he descended to the dead or he descended into hell. So, um, I think he descended to the earth and on the cross he experienced absolute hell on uh, our behalf so anyway questions or comments take time to read through the Apostles Creed um, memorize it rehearse it it's a summary of what we believe questions or comments isn't there a paradise I remember teaching but paradise had two sides to it or- kind of the, well the old testament the hebrew idea of death is is that you know you have you have like uh sheol which was the grave and you had like the righteous in one spot and the unrighteous in the other and so some people have have thought that the old testament understanding was just that you died and went down there somewhere and and they believed in justice and retribution so they realized the unrighteous must be must be punished, so they 're there somewhere, and the righteous are down there in, in somewhere, and they 're with god they 're with yahweh and so that was kind of the understanding, probably where you you get to perhaps um, I think once you get the New Testament canon written, then you get a biblical theology of the afterlife. I think uh, scripture points us to the fact that when we die, our spirits go to be in heaven. Uh, the unbeliever goes into some place of torment, some kind of hell while they, while, where they await a real resurrection of their body and then where they will be placed into hell forever and so, yeah anyway What do you do with the parable of Lazarus and you know, the, the rich man Lazarus, Lazarus I think I haven't read it in a while, I was going to read it last week um it's my understanding that kind of the that's their their worldview at that point right. would be that if I mean, you could – I mean, yeah I mean, Jesus. if that I don't, it, I've often wondered is it a parable or is it a true story Yeah, I, I don't know which way to take. It. Off the top of my head, and I didn't read it this week, and I wish yeah. I would have now. But I've already said I'm a heretic tonight, so <laughs> I think it's it's a parable, okay. you know. And I think the point of it is is that mankind is so sinful that even if somebody came back from the grave exactly. they they still wouldn't yeah, and so I think he's dealing with their framework and their world view you know uh, okay. is is my best guess off the top of my head having not having read it in a while yeah. um, Fair enough. So. but you're an elder here and I already told you I'm a heretic yeah. So, <laughs> what do we do okay, yeah, uh, okay. yeah. alright well Let's pray. Uh, There's little kids wanting in, so. (laughs) Hands above the door like zombies. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you that we grow and learn, Lord. Thank you that we never arrive. Uh, Keep us uh, from error, Lord. May we learn from church history, Lord. If we're wrong about something, may we be humble to admit it and to say we don't know and that we need to change our view or soften an edge here or there, Lord. So help us... uh, Continue to make us more like your son. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all that he endured on our behalf on the cross. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you that he's seated at your right hand and he's coming back again one day to judge the living and the dead. And thank you when he comes again, we will hear the words. He's righteous. Enter into the joy of your master. In Jesus' name, amen.